This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is with 99.9% network reliability from Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Hey, Deuterinos. Every day when I wake up and start work on Shortwave, I never really know what's going to happen. Each day is a little different. But one thing we do every day is think about you, our audience. And now we'd love to know what you think about us. Go to npr.org slash podcast survey to tell us. We know it is a big ask of your precious time with everything else going on, but we promise it means the world to us. And we're going to use this data to make the show even better for you. I know you nerds will come through. All right, here's our show. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Today on Shortwave, we have cooked up something special for you, literally. The Sichuan peppercorns are splitting. Like they're exploding from the heat. Making delicious food and sharing it with people is something that I love. And you know who's phenomenal at this? Kenji Lopez-Alt. Like I literally cooked two different dishes this morning. One of them was pad krapao, so like Thai pork with basil. uh, And the other one was mapo tofu, um, Japanese style mapo tofu. Kenji has a metaphor to describe his cooking philosophy. He compares tackling a new dish to navigating a new city. And you can just stand there and walk down the street staring at your phone and turn when it tells you to turn. But you won't really have an understanding of what the city is like, of how you got there, what the neighborhood is. That's what following a recipe is to him. Yeah, it will take you from point A, raw ingredients, to point B, the final dish. And, you know, that's fine for some people. But once you start to understand sort of technique and science, that's more like being given a map. I can take whatever route I feel like taking, or I can wander around. And as a cookbook author, Kenji has thought a lot about this, how to teach people science-guided techniques to cook in new ways. It allows you to sort of plan your own route and take charge of your own cooking. And now he has written a book all about his favorite pan in the kitchen, The Wok. The Wok that I have in my kitchen, I bought it when I was in college, so um, 20-something years ago. And for the last 20 years, Kenji's wok has had permanent residency on his stovetop. He cooks with it multiple times a week. I've been with my wok longer than I've been, longer than I've known my wife. In his book, aptly titled The Wok, Kenji Lopez-Alt explores recipes and techniques in detail, sprinkling science into his cooking directions. So today on the show, we're going to light those burners and pull out the fancy oil for the coolest pan in the kitchen, according to science. It's the most versatile pan in the kitchen. I'm Emily Kwong. You're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, Kenji. Producer Burley McCoy and I did some cooking on our own to prepare for this interview, and we wanted to start with some wok basics. Do you know why the shape of the wok enables it to be the most versatile pan in the kitchen, from like a scientific standpoint? Yeah, well, so the the shape of a wok is really designed to encourage evaporation. So it has like a very wide surface area. It has a lot of cooking surface. Um, 
because it's so conducive to evaporation, because you have so much surface area, and because mm. the shape of it allows you to toss. And so, at least when you're stir frying, you're looking for very dry heat. So tossing um, and the evaporation that comes with that shape and the action of tossing um, is what allows you to do that and what allows you to get that sort of specific concentrated flavor. One of the techniques you uh, tell people about in the book is just simply pushing things up the sides of the wok because those sides are cooler. And I hadn't really thought about that, how the wok has different zones of heat, which allows for food to stay at different temperatures, which is really not the same with a linear pan. So if you put food in a a flat pan and you shake it, it ends up being in a sort of thin, even layer, right? And that's good when you're like searing a bunch of meat and you want all the steaks to sear evenly. You want there to be even heat across the whole surface. Um, Whereas with a wok, you have this very intense heat at the very bottom, and then it slowly gets steadily cooler as it goes up the sides. So for example, in the book, there's a recipe for pad thai, right? Where you start Mm -hmm. by cooking aromatics and then cooking the noodles in sauce. And then once the noodles are hydrated, Mm -hmm. you push them up the side and clear out the space in the bottom. And so that the noodles don't continue to overcook, but the bottom gets really hot so that you can then fry an egg. You can push that egg up the side. You can sear shrimp. So you can do all these things in this one hot zone in the bottom of the wok without overcooking the ones that you've already cooked. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you make some really specific recommendations for home cooks buying woks and just want to spend a a minute on your suggestion of a carbon steel wok, Mm -hmm. which you say has the highest volumetric heat capacity. What does that mean? (laughs) Why is carbon steel optimal? Well, heat capacity is essentially the amount of heat energy a specific material holds per unit temperature, right? So if you think about your pan as a bucket that's storing energy, right? So you, when you turn on a burner, you're essentially turning on a tap that's filling that bucket at a certain rate, right? And, and, and these buckets, they all leak, right? Your heat is going to be escaping into the kitchen. And once you put food in it, you're very rapidly pouring some of that energy out straight into the food, right? And so you want your pan to be able to hold a certain amount of heat before, so that, so that you're not relying just on the heat input of the, of the stove. You want there to be this balance between the amount of energy that the pan can store so that you get some nice searing at the beginning and some nice really high heat at the beginning. But you also want to be able to adjust the heat rapidly up and down because there are, there are, mo- there are many recipes where you start really hot and then you bring the temperature down and then you bring it back up at the end to reduce the sauce, et cetera. So you want, so, you know, so you want the pan to also be reactive. So carbon steel is good because it stores a good amount of energy, but it can be, it can be actually manufactured thin enough that it's still going to be reactive as well. And you say it's rare in Western cooking that you find yourself in a recipe going from a simmer to a sear to a gentle bubble in a few minutes. Uh, But in a lot of non-Western cooking and Asian cooking, that happens all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Lastly, we're in camp non-stick wok only. Yes? What's that? Oh, oh no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What am I saying? (laughs) What's the opposite of a non-stick wok? Uh, a a non non stick walk a, a stick walk I don't know a sticky walk <laughs> we're in camp avoid non stick <laughs> yeah that's that's what it is yeah uh you say in the book do not buy a non stick walk yeah avoid non stick you want that walk to be sticky why um well it's it's mainly because for many recipes you're going to be heating the walk up very hot at the beginning in particular um so. Um, you might be heating the surface of the of the wok up to five or six hundred degrees, and nonstick coatings um, don't withstand temperatures that high. They tend to break down, and so some of them will actually start smoking, and they'll turn into these horrible carcinogenic things that get into the air. You know, at temperatures above four hundred fifty degrees or so, and so 
nonstick coatings generally are not tough enough to to withstand that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kenji, I recently had the DC contingent of Team Shortwave over for dinner, and we cooked two dishes from your book. Okay. And, you know, I used a wok that I own that's already seasoned. When you purchase a wok before you use it, you talk in the book about seasoning it. Basically, you heat the wok over a flame until it turns almost a bluish-black color, and then you dry it and coat it with oil. Right. Uh, why should you not skip this step? Why should you take the time to season your wok before you use it? Well, th- so there's a couple things. So first of all, like when you buy a carbon steel wok, typically it comes coated with a layer of machine oil, like non-edible oil. So you you definitely want to get that out. The other reason is that, so when you heat your wok up, when you heat the carbon, bare carbon steel in the presence of oxygen, it forms black oxide, which is that, that black coating that you're getting. And that imparts certain nonstick qualities to it. So that's what's going to make it so that you can stir fry in it without things caking onto it. So, you know, that nothing horrible is going to happen if you don't do that. It's just going to be, your, your wok is just not going to have that layer of protection that makes it nonstick. And also, it, it also protects the metal so that it won't rust as easily, etc. And and then finally, you know, if you're really going for certain dishes, there's that wok hay flavor, the breath of the wok, that kind of smoky flavor. So that that's part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're helping us be better walk owners and users. Uh, so, Kenji, we made yes. your favorite dish, mapu right. tofu. What does the mapu tofu mean to you? So, okay, so I grew up eating the the Japanese version of mapu tofu. So mapu tofu is a Sichuan dish right, from the Sichuan province in China. But it came to Japan in the 70s, and my mom learned how to make it, and then... You know, when I was growing up in New York, my mom would make mapo tofu. And uh, what she would do is she would make dumpling filling, right? And so me and my sisters would then make dumplings uh, using this filling, beef-based filling. And then whatever leftover filling there was, that would become the beef part of the mapo tofu. So she would it always had the garlic and ginger and scallions and stuff in it. And so she would stir-fry that and then season it with soy sauce. The Japanese version is soy sauce and sometimes miso paste, mirin, mm-hmm. and then soft tofu. It's, yeah, it's always been one of my favorite things. And it's a, um, it was a comfort food growing up. And, uh, you know, I make it for my kids now. That is so lovely. Kenji, um, we want to play you a little audio of Burley and I making your mapu tofu and tasting the final dish. Uh, this is the tofu and mapu tofu right here. And it's just going to gently simmer in these sauces. Hmm. This did not turn out right. The other dish did. This did not. Mm-mm. It's wrong. What was wrong with it? So I'll tell you what happened. Okay. Here's what happened. Okay. I had um, doubanjang mm-hmm. like sauce, mm-hmm. but not paste. Okay. So there were these other flavors in the doubanjang. Okay. Which is different. Yes. And I was like, oh, no, this is not the same. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, remember what Jake Kenji Lopez Alt would say? Cooking is a map, not Google, so just roll with it. <laughs> um, and so the flavors didn't taste quite right. And right. so I tried to balance them by adding some more salt okay. to kind of just mellow out the funky flavors in the sauce. Okay. And over time, it kind of figured itself out and tasted right. Well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out over uh, over time. And and my guests clearly didn't mind. They liked it. Yum. Yeah. Ground beef. This is 
What excites you about what's happening at the intersection of science and cooking right now? Um, I don't know. I've got I've got two little kids, and so I don't pay much attention to, to much outside my house. Sure. What excites me is that I mean, the intersection of science and cooking is that. My daughter loves experimenting in the kitchen, and we talk about science while we're cooking. So that's the most exciting thing for me right now. I don't know about I don't know about the rest of the world. That's beautiful, Kenji. Thank you so much for bringing all this information, putting it all together into one unbelievably cool book. It was so much fun <laughs> to work through it and to learn from it and to talk to you today. Yeah, it was good to talk to you too. And just a quick reminder. Give us feedback on Shortwave by filling out our podcast survey. Now is really your chance. Go to npr.org slash podcast survey. This episode was produced by Burley McCoy. It was edited by Rebecca Ramirez and Gabriel Spitzer and fact-checked by Rachel Carlson and Margaret Serino. The field engineer was Natasha Branch and the audio engineer was Josh Newell. Giselle Grayson is our senior supervising editor. Beth Donovan is our senior director. And Anya Grunman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Emily Kwong. Thank you so much for listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Microsoft. Monday at the office, feel like a storm. When AI-powered Microsoft Copilot simplifies data and uncovers insights, it feels more like a day at the beach. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. If you're looking for a new way to support this show and public media, please consider signing up for the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR Plus listeners get to unlock sponsor-free listening and bonus episodes from NPR shows like this one. You can find out more at plus.npr.org.